Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you so much for this call here in this passage for us to be pure, to put off the old man, put on the new, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and to walk in such a way that is honorable, that is pleasing to you and that is reflective of your character. Our world needs representatives of God in to shine forth in their, in their lives. Please bless this time that we have together. Bless your word. May it not come back. May it not go forth and be void or empty. Prepare our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. With that reading in mind, we want to turn over this morning to 1 Corinthians the first chapter of 1 Corinthians will be our focus this morning. We are beginning a journey through the book of 1 Corinthians. This will be the first sermon of this series. But we will walk through, uh, likely chapter by chapter. Um, my goal is to be done by the end of this year. And that goal, <laughs> as you know me well enough, you know that that is an unlikely goal, but it is a mandated goal by my classes. And so I, I, I must conclude it by the end of this year. So we will spend some time walking through the book, and then we're going to spend 10 weeks in the 15th chapter talking about the resurrection. And that's going to be our main focus. But I really wanted to build up to that. I want us to see all of the things in the book of of uh, 1 Corinthians that I, I believe press us into this significant chapter on the resurrection of the body. And, and I want us to see kind of all of the things that go on that are, uh, I think, um, products of not believing in the physical resurrection of the body and all of the things that happen. So we're going to walk through that together. So 1 Corinthians chapter number one is where we'll be at this morning in, in God's word. I want to start off with a little antidote to kind of give you maybe um, a, a picture, a, an example that would help us to, as we do dive into this passage of Scripture. One of my, favorites, one of my family's favorite activities is uh, going to amusement parks. And uh, we love amusement parks, and we've, we've been to many of them, but we like to get to the amusement park, and our goal is to find the biggest and scariest and fastest roller coaster in, in the entire park, and then we ride it endlessly. I remember, at, we do, we just ride it over and over and over again, and, and unless there are several really good ones like it, we will, we will maybe move around between them, but we usually are just a constant... Uh, riding the fastest, scariest roller coaster that we can find, and we always look for the one that maybe one of the others won't ride, and we give them a hard time about being afraid of it, but we love the roller coaster rides. It's just fast and furious, and it's an adrenaline rush that just really gets, I think, we, we enjoy it a lot. Weird as it may seem, I can remember the first roller coaster that I ever rode. I was a teenager in Nebraska, and we, I was a part of a youth group, and we went to, um, we went to, what was the name of the, we went to Worlds of Fun in Kansas City, Missouri. And at Worlds of Fun, there was this new ride called the Orient Express. 
And during that time, this ride was, 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 was a big deal because it was one of few rides that actually included a 360-degree loop. And so it was in that time that they were introducing these rides that were going to go upside down, and, and, uh, and yeah, it was kind of crazy. What's interesting about this, and where I want to bring this around, is that on, on all of these rides, the most intense part of the ride for me was the ride up the first hill. It was that ride up the first hill. If, I don't know if you've, if you've been on a, a roller coaster, you know the ride up the first hill. For me, the ride up the first hill is the craziest. You're riding up and you're looking off, off on both sides. It's the slowest part of the whole ride, right? It, they couldn't just like zoom you up there and then you go on the rest of the ride. They have to really kind of like, and it's weird because you're going up that ride and you hear all of these chains like clanking and you're like, okay, is this like, is this going to break right here and I'm going to go backwards instead of going forward? But you slowly, you go up that first hill of that ride, and you're looking over both sides, and you're going up slowly. The, the, the uh, cranks are the, the whatever, you, whatever you call it, the, the belts are clanking loudly and churning, uh, seeming at any point in time that they could break. And they're carrying you to the top. And I don't know about you, but finally when I would get to the top, there would always be this like sigh of relief. And most roller coasters, they almost have this short little season at the top where you're just like, oh, okay, this is great, right? And you breathe out, oh, good, we finally made it. Maybe that's even something that you said to yourself, we finally made it, only to, in less than a few seconds, you're cast over a 60 to 90 degree drop. Your stomach is immediately in your throat. You reach intense speeds, you twist and you turn, you're in your seat, you're out of your seat, the G-forces are crazy, and everybody is screaming throughout the whole ride. And then at the end, you come to this screeching stop, at which time you are done. It's over. Less than a minute. Most rides are less than a minute. Matter of fact, the hill that goes up to the top probably takes more time than the whole rest of the ride. But you've just had this intense moment, and what seemed like an eternity going up that first hill ended up being in total less than a minute. And you twisted, and you turned, and you were scared, and you felt every emotion that was in the book, and, and you just, it was that, it was just an intense ride. But before you reach that intense ride of the roller coaster, you have to get to the top of that first hill. And what, and what the letter of Corinthians does is it takes us on that intense ride. Matter of fact, from verse 10 of the first chapter down to the, pretty much the end of the book is this intense ride. It's this twisting and turning. It's uphill and downhill. It's, it's out of your seat, in your seat. It's, it's stomach in your throat. It's, it's everything that you can imagine about life in an intense way. And, 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 and it's crazy. And there's, there's concerns and worries and fears and, and doubts and frustrations and everything all along the way. But what he does, what the Apostle Paul does in writing this book is he he, he takes us up that first hill and he kind of sets the stage for us so that we can experience the rest of the ride properly. So the Christian life in many ways is like the roller coaster ride. 
The first hill represents a person coming into a relationship with Christ. The first hill uh, represents a trusting in Christ. It's a, I, I know when you're going up that hill, it's so interesting. Again, I've been there before. You're going up that first hill. The whole rest of the ride is the same, right? You're on the same tracks. The same system is pushing you and pulling you. But when you're going up that first hill, you're thinking about all of those things pushing you and pulling you, aren't you? You're mindful of every little piece of that machinery getting you to the top of that first hill. Once the ride starts going, you forget about all of those machinery and you're just like going on the ride. But in that first, you're thinking about, okay, I'm depending on these chains to get me to the top. I'm depending on this uh, ride to not fail. And you're kind of like processing all of this stuff. That's kind of the first step in the Christian life. It's you're brought to a place in your life where you're asked the question or inside of you, you have this eternal conflict of, can I trust in Christ? Can I put my dependence totally on him? And when you're going up that first hill, you're looking over the sides and you're seeing that, man, there's, if things don't go the way that they're supposed to go, this is going to be a bad deal, right? But man, when you strap into that seat and you commit yourself and you start going up that hill, you have to, at that moment, be fully trusting that that system is going to get you to the top of that hill. So it is with Christianity. We have to strap in and we have to fully trust that Christ is going to accomplish the things that he's going to accomplish. We have to trust that his sacrifice for our sins was sufficient. We have to trust that his ability to make us righteous, to gift us his righteousness is enough. We have to trust that God is going to show favor to us based upon the works of Christ. We have to learn to trust Christ. We have to depend upon him in this moment, in the beginning stages. Sure, the twists and the turns are getting ready to happen, but there's a certain level of establishment that has to take place first. There's a certain level of confidence that has to take place in Christ before you're ever going to be ready for those twists and turns. Before you're going to be ready for that first drop, you've got to be confident that that system is going to work. And so with Christ, it's the same. We are, we are locked in as Christians to him. We are dependent. We're trusting in him for all of the things that he has promised us in his word. And that first hill is the test, if you will, of that faith that we have. It's that first trial that we experience. Then when we hit the, the turns and the twist, we know that the Lord is conforming us into his image. This is, this is the sanctification process. This is the piece of the puzzle that God, that God begins to merge us into his image or mold us into his image. Romans 8.28 says, For we know for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. The Lord is conforming us into the image of Christ, and that's the, that's the twist and the turns, that's the uphills, and that's the downhills. That's, that's, the, that's the craziness of life. But before we get there, before we embrace those twists and turns, we have to be steadfast and secure in who we are and in who Christ is. This is why he starts the letter off this way. And let's read it together. The Bible says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, 
called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every place you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Before we get into just breaking this down, we need to understand what the struggle was that the Corinthian church was dealing with that brought about this letter. There's really one primary uh, uh, error, there's one primary heresy that, these, that this church is dealing with that causes the Apostle Paul to write this letter approximately three years after establishing this church. So this church hasn't been established very long, and the Apostle Paul leaves this church to go to Ephesus, and he then writes from Ephesus back to this church just about three years after leaving it, and he's going to deal with some things that are problematic in the church. If you've read the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that it is literally just one reprimand after another. It is a, it is a strong um, pressing of the church of the Lord to change, to, to make alterations in their life, to become different than they were. And the reason for this is because in the in the Roman culture, which is really what the, this church was established in, the Greek and the Roman cultures mixed together, in these cultures there was this perspective of the resurrection that was challenging, if you will, how they walked through their life. In other words, in the Greco-Roman culture, there was no belief in the physical resurrection. They didn't believe that the body would, would rise again, the 15th chapter that deals with the doctrine of the resurrection was something that the culture did not accept in in Corinth. The people outside of the church did not believe in the resurrection and therefore, and, and this principle or this error began to infiltrate the church. Some believed that the, the, um, the body was just simply insignificant, that it was less important than the um, soul or the spirit and therefore it, it, it uh, and that was known as spiritualism and, and, the, and therefore the, the, the emphasis was on the spirit and not on the body. Others believed that the body would not raise from the dead and ultimately would be annihilated and this was they separated the body from the spirit completely and this was called dualism. So it was almost like you had two separate worlds taking place, the, that of the physical and then that of the spiritual. And the Corinthian culture adopted no resurrection. They did believe that the soul lived on, but they did not believe that the body was ever going to be resurrected and restored to the soul. The result of this heresy was the Corinthian church lived corruptly. They followed after cultural pleasures. 
They they intensely followed after cultural pleasures. They found themselves doing business like the world does business. They found themselves doing relationships like the world does relationships. They found themselves doing everything physical like the world does everything physical. In other words, they saw the world's way of doing things physically as being okay because they had separated their physical from the spiritual. They they had made this excuse in their mind that if the spiritual and the physical are not connected, then I can live in the flesh however I want to. The way to succeed in life is the same way as I see some great worldly person succeeding in life, so I'll adopt their philosophies. I'll I'll do it the way that they do it. And they separated the spiritual over here. The spiritual is over here. Yeah, we'll go to church on Sunday. Yeah, we'll, we'll have our, maybe we'll have our devotions every day, but, we'll, but, we're, but, they're, but they're not connected. They're not tied together. They're separate. And the body is just going to die in the end anyway. It's just going to be annihilated. There is no future for it. There is no, eternal, there is no eternal nature of the body. So therefore, whatever we do in the body really doesn't matter, does it? We can, we can abuse our bodies. We can put things into our bodies that really are, are really harmful for our bodies because the body really doesn't matter. And the spiritual things matter, so we, we have to make sure that we're balancing it out with spiritual things because the spirit's going to live forever. So make sure that while you're, while you're living f- foolishly, for lack of a better term, with your body, make sure that you're still doing some spiritual things because in the end, your spirit's going to carry on and you want to make sure that there is some strength within your spirit. That's what the Corinthian church had adopted from the culture. And that's why you see division in the church. Why were they divided? They were divided because they liked this speaker over that speaker. They liked the style of this preacher over the style of that preacher. Where, Where does that come from? Does that come from the humility that God calls us to in the church? Does that come from the graciousness and the simplicity that God calls us to in the church? Or does does that come from the world's philosophy of how you do business? People taking each other to court and the law system to sue each other who are in the church. Does that come from, from God's commandments and his word? Does that come from being obedient to his direction? Or does that come from the world's system? Living immoral lives, having multiple girlfriends or wives or living sexually impure lives uh, while going to church. And one, one man in the, in the fifth chapter is having a relationship with his stepmother. Does that come from the Bible or does that come from the world? You see, what happens is, and I, I will say this to you and I think it's important for us to get, is we in the 21st century America, we've done something very similar in that we have made this distinction between that which is spiritual and that which is physical and we think it's okay to live however we want to live physically because that's all going to go away, it's all going to be annihilated as long as we do our spiritual duties as well. This is an error. This is a heresy that, that, that God, is, God is going to correct seriously in the book of 1 Corinthians. He is going to lay down the law, if you will, to the church at Corinth. He's going to tell them, change. Stop being divided. Stop being immoral. Stop taking your brother to the courts. Stop eating meat that's been offered to idols. Stop living for yourself. Stop using your spiritual gift to glorify your own flesh. Stop stop doing all of these things. Because what you do in your body matters. 
How you live your life matters, not just separating, but together. Body and spirit together. And what we do in our body and spirit matters to eternity. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. It's all about saying, this is all about the future life. The Corinthian church was living corruptly, following after every worldly pleasure, living life as if it were to be lived as the culture requires it, but also doing their spiritual service. Paul's letter to the Corinthians is a letter and a call to action. It's a call to change. It's a call of instruction to embrace that the physical and the spiritual are one. Listen to what the, listen to what the Apostle Paul says to the church at Rome which he is writing from Corinth. So he's in Corinth when he's writing to this letter to the Romans, which probably some of the things that he writes are connected to what he's going through because he's in a Roman culture in Corinth as well. He says this, Romans 12 and verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your... What's the next word? You present your bodies... Well, it would make better sense if he would have said you present your spirits, right? But he says, I I want you to present your bodies, your physical bodies, the physical world. I want you to commit your physical bodies to God. He says that you commit your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. So he connects the two. You're presenting your body as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual service to God. He tells us in this same book, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20, he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God? And you are not your own, but you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your in your body and your and your spirit, which are which are his. In other words, he owns them both. When he purchased us, he didn't purchase our spirit, he purchased the whole being. Jesus purchased me by his blood, all of me, body, soul, and spirit. Jesus Christ owns me. He is my master and my Lord, and therefore, when I embrace that reality, I bring the spiritual and the carnal, and I, make, I bring them together, and I realize that it's all meant for the service of our God. It's all meant to be committed to God. Everything that I do in life, both spiritual and physical, when I go to work on Monday, I'm meant to worship and praise God through my work. I don't disconnect it from Sunday when I went to church. I I connect the two together. I live the same way on Monday that I lived on Sunday. I may not go into corporate worship on Sunday, but I can worship God. I can praise God. I can please God. I can honor God on Monday as much as I can please God and honor him on Sunday. True or not true? Those two things have to come together. And what the Apostle Paul is doing is he is refuting this idea in Corinth that there is a separation of physical and spiritual. And he's calling the church to change. He's calling them to change, to look at life differently, 
to look at their situation and their circumstances differently, to look at their bodies differently, and to live a certain way as to bring glory to him in them all. There are five things I want to share with you this morning from our text here that the Apostle Paul does, I believe, to lay a foundation, if you will, for the change that he's going to call us to. Listen, receiving admonition to change is not easy, is it? As someone said to me recently, I was sharing with them that I was going to be preaching through 1 Corinthians, and the comment was, oh boy, you really want to get into it, right? And I was like, no, I don't really want to get into it. We need to hear this stuff. And a call to change is not a bad thing. And what the, what the Lord is doing, I believe, in the first nine verses here is he's laying forth his heart so that we know that in his call for our change, in his call to us to, to no longer view life as being dual, physical and spiritual, but to bring it together, I think what he wants us to see in the first portion is he wants us to see his heart behind it. What, what is the Lord thinking when he makes all of these calls or all of these challenges to us? Let me give you these things, and let me, we'll walk through the text here um, as we go. But, but, but first of all, just, just um, kind of capturing what we've already said, the Apostle Paul writes Corinth because God wants us to change. I think that's first and foremost. God wants us to change. He doesn't want us to stay where we're at spiritually. I, I read over in Ephesians 4, as we started out this morning, he says to the church, to the believing church, he says, take off your old man and put on your new man. I mean, he's literally making a practical call to the church at Ephesus to no longer live according to what they were like before they were saved, but to live according to what they should be like after they were saved. And he doesn't make the distinction of saying, live in your flesh this way, but live in your spirit this way, he connects the two together and he says, don't lie. Don't steal. These are physical things that we do. God wants us to change. He wants us to be conformed into the image of his son. That's what Romans 9 promises us. When a person gets saved, they are conformed into the image of Christ. There is change that's taking place. And I get the fact that the change is not immediate, but it's literally, it's like that roller coaster ride that you're going to experience. It's going to be up and down and twist and turns. It's going to be crazy. And there's going to be points where you scream, and there's going to be points where, you're, where, you're, where you're, your stomach is in your throat. There's going to be these moments in the Christian life, but if you can get these, these, um, these pieces of the puzzle settled before you get to the turns and Right, you got it. Man, we made it up that first hill. We got to get up that first hill, or you'll never be ready for that first drop. And we need to be up that first hill before we're ready for that first drop. We need to have settled in our heart that we're comfortable with the Lord. So, first of all, just remember this God desires change from his people, not just spiritual change, physical change. He wants us to change what we love. He wants us to change what we're committed to. He wants us to change what we put into our bodies. He wants us to change what we, what we do in life and why we do it. He wants us to change these things, to be daily conformed into the image of his son. God wants change. Number two, God wants change through teamwork. Notice this in the very beginning of this passage. He says, Paul, called by the will of God, 
to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ both theirs and ours. What we, have, we have two things mentioned here in regards to the partnership that we have in this journey that is the Christian life. There's a partnership. Have you ever been on a roller coaster ride and you've got someone sitting next to you? Maybe it's your wife or your significant other. And oftentimes when you make it to the top of that hill, you grab their hand, right? Because you know that the next piece of the journey is going to be crazy. And you grab their hand for comfort. There's a, there's a reality to the Christian life. There's a reality to the turns and the, and the things that you're going to experience and the fears that you're going to have to um, go through and the, and, the, and the things that you're going to have to overcome. There's a reality to that that you're never meant to be alone in the journey. You're never meant to be alone in the journey. God has set it up in such a way that you, there's, a, there's a partner that you're to go with all along the way. That's why he says here, and to everyone... He says, call to be saints together. And that call to be saints is this, is this progressive thing, if you will. It's this daily changing. He says, call to be saints together with all of those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord. We're called to be saints together. The, the word there means we're called to be saintly. Another interpretation of it would be holy. We're called to be holy together. We can't make it on our own. We can't do it on our own. The changes that are required of us, the the changes that help us to represent Christ well in this world, they are difficult changes. They are letting go of things that we perhaps have taken pleasure in our whole lives, addictions and things that have controlled us, and we're being called by God to let go of them. We can't do it on our own. We need someone to come alongside of us and join us. We not only need someone to come alongside of us and join us, but if you look at verse number one, it talks about the Apostle Paul. He's not just there to join us in the battle. He's there to instruct us in the battle. And, and notice this, that it says over and over again that he was, he says that he was called, which means that he was given a, a station, a position. The Apostle Paul was given a position to, to, to help the church at Corinth get through this struggle. He was called by the will of God. It wasn't his own will. It wasn't his own desire of his own heart. God had placed him there to join them in the journey. And he was sent out. The word apostle means to be sent out. He was sent out by God. He was commissioned by God. So God helps us, gives us partnerships, if you will, to help us get through the rough seasons of the Christian life. Some of those partnerships are apostolic meaning that they're specifically sent out, like they're, they're sent out for the reason of partnering in a in discipleship kind of way to help you get through those things. Maybe somebody who is further along in their Christian life. Maybe somebody who has gone through the journeys of these struggles and they've been sent out for the purpose of walking with you through it. I think of 1 Corinthians 1 or um, 2 Corinthians 1, it says that we go through the trials that we go through so that we can help people that go through the same trials. 
So, so, so number one, notice this, that there's this partnership that is an, an authoritative partnership, somebody that is above you, someone that is authoritative over you. You know, sometimes in the Christian life, especially if you deal with temptation and you deal with addiction and you deal with struggles, sometimes you just need someone to tell you to stop. Someone that you respect, someone that you, you find that they are, that you trust them, they have been placed there to be able to do that, that's what the Apostle Paul is here. He is making it very clear, or God is making it very clear to the church at Corinth, that the Apostle Paul has been placed there for the reason of telling these people to stop. He is an authoritative partner for the journey. But I want to submit to you this as well. There's not only authoritative partners for the journey, but there is just basic friendship partners for the journey. Just other believers. They're just going to walk with you through it. Believers that are going to encourage you, believers that are going to hold your hand and they're going to pat your back and they're going to say the right things to you, there are these as well for the journey. Remember this, the Christian life is not meant to be run alone. Salvation is an individual event, but purification and perseverance take team effort. When the Bible says in Matthew 20 and verse 16, so the last shall be first and the first shall be last, what is, what is implied there is that we all finish at the same time. You ever see those races, those long runs, they're running around the track and somebody falls, right? And that person who's in front of them or behind them stops and picks them up and he carries them. You ever seen that? Anybody ever seen that? Yeah, most of you have. If you have a computer, you've probably seen these videos But you know what's interesting is, man, one carries the other one, and guess what? When they walk across that finish line, they walk across it together. One is full strength. The other one has no strength at all. But how do they finish? They finish together. And that's what the Christian, when the Lord says the first will be last and the last will be first, there's only one way for that to be possible, and that is if everybody crosses the finish line at the same time. We are meant to journey in the Christian life together. We are meant to be there for each other. We are not meant to run past the person who fell down and make it to the finish line before them. Are we? It makes no sense at all to the Christian, Christian, does it? If that person has fallen down in front of me and I can beat them or I can join them, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to join them every time. The journey is meant to be done in teamwork. We all finish together. The church is an aid to each other in the Christian life. Ephesians 4, verse 11 through 16. We don't have time to read it, but read it in your own time. The Lord talks about the, the partnership so that we can, all be, we can all be mature in the Lord. God calls, God positions, God stations people in our lives to help us on this journey. The second thing that we need to understand is that God wants change. First of all, God wants change. God wants change. God wants change through teamwork, working together. I thought that was my alarm. I, I, I looked up at the clock like, am I supposed to be done already? <laughs> I won't point out who did that this morning. But <laughs> yeah. Um, the second thing, that I, or the third thing I want you to see is God wants change based upon his favor. N- notice this. This is, so, this is so important. The Bible says in verse number four, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. 
that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, God wants us to know in this journey, and he says it in verse number two, it says as well, he says, to the church of, Corinth, to the church of God as in Corinth, to those that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. So he's writing this letter to a group of people that he's, he, he is wanting them to know that they're, that they're, they're secure. The word, the word sanctified here is in, is, in the, um, it is in the perfect tense, which means it's an act that has, has been completely accomplished. It's an, it's an interesting tense of a verb that always implies there's nothing more left to be done. So if you think about this, Paul's about to write a letter to this church He's going to tell them all about change. But before he tells them all about change, he wants them to know that they have been completely sanctified already. They've already been set apart. They've already been, they've already been made God's children. This is the church of God. He owns it. He possesses it. This is a child of God. This is not somebody... that The change doesn't take place before we become a child of God. The change takes place... And then the change takes place because we are children of God. This is a very dangerous perspective if it's not viewed correctly because some religions will teach you that change comes so that you can become a Christian. You can't change yourself to become a Christian. You must be changed by God. And then he does expect you to change because of the favor that he has revealed to you. The basis of real change can only take place by the favor of God. You'll notice in the text here a few words that are used that are past tense. He says that they were sanctified, which is past tense. He says that they were recipients of the grace of God, which is past tense. That they were enriched, which is past tense. That they were confirmed, which is past tense. All of these things have already happened. And the Lord wants us to know this. You are not working towards favor with God. You're not trying to make God happy with you. You're building off the fact that God is happy with you. You're not trying to make God your father. You're building on the fact that God is your father. And in order for the Apostle Paul to, conf- to be able to tell the church the next 15 chapters what to do and what to live, he has to secure them in the reality. Think about this. If I'm in Corinth and all of a sudden I get these immediate instructions like Paul's going to give them, my first, cha- my first response would be, well, maybe I'm not even a Christian. Man, that is a tool of the devil to get you from ever pursuing the finish line if you don't even think you're in the race anymore. If the devil can convince you you're not in the race, you will not pursue the finish line. So what does the Apostle Paul does? He makes sure that they know that all of these things have already been completed. You're not working towards being justified. You're not working towards being sanctified. You're working because of these things. God has saved you. God has called you sovereignly into his family. God has placed within you his spirit, not because you did something to get it, because he did everything to give it. All of those things are complete. They are done. They are in the past. 
And now you are working towards his glory because of the fact that he secured you in him. Listen to me, folks. You've got to come to the point in your life where you have accepted the eternal life that God gifts to you and you have embraced it as being yours, not because you are good, but because Jesus is good. Not because you deserve it or have earned it or have worked for it or have done any type of special deed, but because Jesus did everything necessary to save your soul. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He rose again the third day to give you his life. God wants us to change, but he wants us to change based upon his favor, not that we might earn it. The future tense things in the text are that you would be saintly, that you would not be lacking in your spiritual gifts, and that you would be, that you would be not lacking as you wait. You're waiting for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are things that we do, but they're all based upon things that have already been done. If Philippians tells us in chapter number two, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, right? For it is God who works in you both the ability and the desire to do which is pleasing in his sight. God has worked in you, and he's calling you to work it out. The changes that he calls us to are built around the changes that he has created. Right? He has planted. We water and sow. He brings the anchor, or he has, he has planted seed within us, planted change within us. We, we then act upon the change that he's planted within us. He is the one who gives life. We are the one who act on the life that has been given. We grow in the grace that he has provided for us. We put it into, into action. God wants change based upon his, fa- his favor in our lives that has already been given to us. Number four, God wants change based upon Christ. God wants change based upon Christ. And what I, what I mean by that is throughout this text, there are several things about Christ that are Mentioned Three names are mentioned over and over again about Christ, identifying who is the central focus in our change. Who is the central focus in our change? Jesus is used eight times in this text. In these nine verses, we see the name Jesus eight times, which describes the humanity, the human name of Christ. He is the one that we look to as our example. He's the one that we look to as our salvation. He's the one that we look to for sanctification. Jesus Christ, the the man, Jesus Christ, the man, is the one that we look to as our substitute for our sins and as our example of how we ought to live our lives. He tells us in the uh, epistle of Peter, he tells us that he is an example to us of how we ought to live our lives. Jesus is the example He's called the Messiah nine times in this text. Christ is the term that's used. He is the deliverer. He is the chosen one. He is the Messiah. This is the basis of our change. Not that anything else can save us. Only Christ can save us. He is our Lord. This is used six times in the text. He is our Lord. These are foundational. If we're going to make the changes necessary, we have to build upon the fact that Christ is the central focus of our change. We change because of Jesus. He is our Savior. He is the Savior of all who believe. He is sovereign over all things. He is the Lord over all things. We can fearlessly change knowing that God is in complete control. 
remember this, much of the change that God requires of his people are and is cultural suicide. Much of the change that God asks for us are anti-cultural. But Christ is worthy. Christ is worth it. And Christ is in control. He wants change based upon a focus on Christ. Not a focus on you, but a focus on him who was the perfect man who died for your sins and who resurrected the third day completely victorious over all that is evil. This is our Messiah. This is our Savior. This is our Lord. And so the changes that he calls us to are based upon these things. Romans 8, 28, for we know that all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose, to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Lastly this morning, God wants change based upon his character and his promises. We look at the very end of this chapter, the Bible says, um, the very end of this passage, the Bible says, even as the testimony about Christ has been confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom we are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we notice that this is all referring to the end. This is the finish line, if you will. This is the future. This is the return of Christ. This is our our leaving this earth and, and meeting him in the air. This is the end. And he gives us some promises that will help us as we go through the twists and the turns that the Christian life calls us to. This will help us stand when the world says, fall. These few things. First of all, his promises. He promises, first of all, to sustain us. It means to establish us, to settle us, or to stabilize us. We know that the scripture tells us he will never leave us or forsake us. The scriptures tells us that the Lord is patient and gentle, and he matures us as we go. He is working something out for our good and for his glory. First Peter 5 and verse 10 says it this way, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. The Lord has promised that he will sustain us. If you ever thought about something that you've been going through, when you just ask yourself, am I ever going to get through this? Am I ever going to make it through? The Bible tells us that the Lord will sustain us. It's a promise that he has given us. And we can know that we're going to get to the other side based upon the promise of God to sustain us through the journey. This is what gets us through. He says he promises us that he will sustain us. He promises us that he will sustain us to the end. He will keep us until the end. He doesn't promise that he'll sustain us till the middle. He says he's going to get us through to the other side. Philippians 1 and verse 6, he says, I am sure of this or confident of this, that he who hath begun a good work in me or in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. It is the Lord's work to sustain us. It is the Lord's work to get us to the end. It is the Lord's work. And not only to get us to the end, but he says he will sustain us guiltless. It means blameless or irreproachable. It is the Lord's work to get us there pure. 
get us there blameless. He promises that we'll be guiltless, that he will conform us into the image of Christ perfectly through justification, sanctification, and glorification. And it's all based upon the giftedness that he has placed in us through and in Christ. And he promises us victory, that we will make it to the end. And then last, lastly, in regards to what he wants us to change in regards to his character and promises, is his character. It's based upon his character. God is faithful. What does it mean to be faithful? It means that God is unchanging. God is consistent. God's word is true. God's promises come true. He will persevere. He will win. He never fails. This is the basis for us as we reach the top of that first hill. We've got to know all of these things. We've got to know that the next part of this journey is going to be a drop that's going to put your stomach in your throat. And if you're not settled in these other things, it's going to do more than just put your stomach in your throat. You've got to be settled in who who you're leaning on, who you are in Christ, who you are in Christ. You've got to be settled on that. You've got to be settled on who your friends are, who your partnerships are, who you're going to when things are completely out of control. You've got to be settled on that. And man, most importantly, and lastly, you've got to be settled on who God is. If you're not, if you don't believe that he's faithful, if you don't believe that he's going to get you to the end, if if you don't believe that he is capable of causing you to persevere to the end, when you reach that, that, that low spot, you know, it's like the, the, it's like you watch these videos of these roller coaster rides and there's a certain part on the ride where they take a picture or they videotape somebody in there and you see them saying, let me off the ride, right? That's the part where you need to know who God is, who you are, and who you can lean on. When God is calling you to change, listen, you can't go to the wrong people because they will cause you to not change. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says it this way, bad, bad manners corrupts, bad company corrupts good manners. Same book. Starts and ends with the same thing. You need to have the right people around you. He called people to help you in the journey. He knows who you are. You have been already sealed by him. And in the end, he is faithful. And he will get you to the end. My encouragement to you this morning, I want you to notice this. The only thing, it's it's an interesting passage of scripture. There is a ton of passive verbs in this passage of scripture because the Lord is doing everything. There's two active verbs in it. One that I think is central. And I want you to think about this as we close. The active verb that is central is this. All those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. This is what we do. This is, our active, this is our active activity when it comes to our walk with God. This is our activity when we're on the twist and turns and we're in our seats and out of our seats. This is our activity. It's not that we become more self-righteous. It's not that we fix our problems or make it feel, you know, we take a drama mean before we go so it doesn't feel as crazy along the journey. Our calling in this situation, when we're hitting all of the twists and turns in life, he says this, here's what you need to understand is your responsibility is to call out to God. That's it. Remember what Romans 10 and verse 13 says? 
Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what you're called to. It's not, a, it's, not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a magic trick. It's not you doing some certain things to make your life better, to make yourself more acceptable. Listen to me. God reaches down to the lowest of the lows, and he saves people, not people who have it all together, but he saves people who are crying out to him for help. And he says in that verse, it's an absolute promise. If you will cry out to God for help, he will save you. He will deliver you. And he will get you to the end. You won't get yourself there. He will do it. He is the active. You are the one crying out for help. If you're here with us this morning and you haven't found that peace with God, you haven't found that place of forgiveness, you haven't found that place of redemption, you haven't found that experience of salvation, listen, all I, all I ask you to do is cry out to God. He's a merciful, gracious God. He will save you. He will deliver you. He will stabilize you. And he will cause you to persevere till the end. And he will perfect you on the journey. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. And we pray that if there's anyone here that isn't yet a follower of yours, that you would you would open their eyes, their minds, their hearts to receive the truths of your word, that you would cause them to cry out to you and to know that you're faithful, that you are gentle and kind, and that you will bring salvation and deliverance and the changes that you're going to produce in their life, that you will sustain them through those and make the changes necessary. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this time together in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.